Hi, Grace. Uh, would you pray with me? Gracious God, thank you for the gift of your presence with us in Jesus through his spirit. Thank you for your commitment to be with us always, to be near to us. And wherever we might be and whatever we're facing, God, you are there. And I think, I think we need a, a fresh encounter with your presence, with your spirit. A reminder, a surprise that you are the God who is faithful, that you are the God who is merciful, that you are the God who is infinitely gracious, that you are the God who, through Jesus, has called us to yourself to shape us into people who extend and embody and bear witness to that mercy and to that grace. And God, we need you to speak to us. We need you to speak, and we need your strength to be able to hear. So I pray that you would speak. I pray that we would be willing to receive what you have and that you would continue to do the good work in us as a church, as your people, into forming us into more of your son's likeness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Grace, how are we doing? Um, what a time do we live in. And I am getting so tired of saying that. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm playing this game or I'm a part of this game that I didn't sign up for that's like, how are they going to talk about this? Uh, and, and we find ourselves in this really wild week, in this wild time, of course, post-election, in this limbo, what's going to happen? And, and there's always this... Um, this potential problem, if you will, of like addressing uh, the moment or a moment because you want to be sure that in the addressing of it, in the reflecting on it, you're not or that I'm not losing sight of the fact that that Christ is Lord, that Jesus is King, and then place, and then by, by actually addressing it perhaps too much or too often, then you, you, you end up giving too much weight um, to the earthly powers and to the princes and to the kings, which we in scripture are told um, not to be overly concerned with. Um, but still, I think that we continue to find ourselves in a moment as the church, as the church in, in America specifically, um, needing to think about, needing to uh, be challenged by um, just the, what's going on, that we are we are always and all the time being shaped in some way by what's going on. And so how are we then attending uh, to the presence of God, to his formation, to his work in our lives through what is going on? And, and this seems to be a discipling moment for the church and, and, um, and whatever that might mean for us and, and for Grace Long Beach, but also beyond. And so I had a message or a sermon prepared uh, and you know where this is going. Um, and, and then I, f I felt or I woke up uh, and, and I thought, oh, 
there are just some things I want to, I want to reflect on in light of scripture. And so you might be wondering, well, why wasn't there a scripture reading before um, the, the sermon today? And part of that is because there was a scripture reading and then uh, last minute decision of, of wanting to some, focus on, on something different. But we're going to get back to that actually in a couple weeks. Uh, so don't worry about that. But we still are in the middle of a series on hospitality and, and how, what does it look like to make space and, and have, make room in our minds and our hearts and our lives for the other, for the stranger, uh, for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan? What does it look like for us to be a people who are so bent on living into the incredible and inviting welcome of God? What does that mean for us? What does that look like for us? And I feel like we find ourselves this week in a moment where we are, we are needing to take seriously that idea of, of living into God's welcome. And, and what does it mean to live into God's welcome when it's so clear um, as if you've been watching any of the results coming in, if you've been watching like that, that colorful uh, map of the United States filling up with different colors, what, what has become so clear is that we continue to be polarized and so divided. If there's anything, and if there was any wondering, um, what is what we are so sure of now is that there is a very clear divide between people and, and in, in our nation, in our country. And insofar that is true in our country, then perhaps it is true, and we see it that is true in the Church of North America and then um, here in our church as well. And so when, what, do we, what do we do with that? What does it mean for the church to be faithful in the midst of this time, of this moment? Well, I want to start off with um, some scripture that I'm going to end with, uh, but because I think it's important to hear from God's word uh, together. This is from 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 4 through verse 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus. For in every way you've been enriched in him, in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of Christ has been strengthened among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end, so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. And so what does it mean for us as a church to live in the midst of what feels like a divide? Uh, and, and of course, this is the question that we've been asking, um, it seems to be all throughout 2020. Uh, what does it mean? What does it look like for the church to be the church? What does it look like for the church to be the church when we can't meet in the, our usual forms and in the way that we would like to? What does it mean when, when to be the church when it seems like people aren't experiencing or at least living in response to the pandemic in the way that you are or um, in the way that you would like them to? What does it mean for the church uh, to be the church when it seems like people's interpretations of the world are so vastly different, understandings of injustice, of freedom, of social policy, etc. 
I mean, what does it mean to be the presence of Christ to another Christian whose convictions seem so opposite, perhaps even more difficult? What does it mean to receive another person as the presence of Christ to you when a person seems so opposite? These are the struggles, the questions. This is the wrestling that we, the church, find ourselves in. Grace Long Beach for sure, but also beyond. Here's the thing. I, I don't know if these struggles are going away anytime soon. Part of the haunting that I woke up with this morning and perhaps some of the prompting to address some of this was the refrain that I, that I can't stop remembering from Tuesday in, in watching the election results come in, where if in any sort of news station was too close to call or too close to call regarding states and who, like where it was going to go and, and to which candidate they were going to fall or, or too early to tell. And that idea of it being too close to call, just this real sense of, oh my goodness, there is just clearly such strong difference of opinion of how we understand and interpret reality. And so where do we go? And if that's not going to change, what does it look like for the church to be faithful in the midst of it? I think one way, one temptation, of course, is entrenchment. When we get into these moments and we feel at least intention or uncertain, we, we, there's a tendency of wanting to dig our heels in. Um, we, want, we, want to, we want to find our own trench with our own tribe and we want to stay there. We don't want to go anywhere else. And I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know what entrenchment looks like for you. I don't know if it means like living with resentment. Um, I don't know if it means like finding a, a, a different group or a different church uh, where you imagine people are more like-minded like and, and where you find yourself. Um, I don't know if that means and leaving the church, capital C, altogether. Uh, I don't know. Um, if it means you're just kind of waiting to see what will happen and then you will decide what will you do. I don't know where you find yourself in the midst of this tension, in the midst of this what seems to be a pretty strong uh, polarization and divide. But I think we, when we get into this, to this moment, we, we want so desperately to ease it. We want to get rid of it. And, and so we, we, or at least I, um, find myself wanting to retreat or wanting to dismiss or wanting to walk the other way. Now, Miroslav Volf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, and I'm going, he's been a conversation partner uh, for me in this and thinking about the church and where we find ourselves. He calls this, this sort of sense of entrenchment or this retreat or this dismissal, he refers to this as exclusion. And, and he says that, that this can, exclusion can happen from a variety, for a variety of reasons, right? There's a tribalism that, that we have, that, that we find our own tribe, and then any, anybody outside of that tribe certainly doesn't belong. There's this idea that we treat others with suspicion, that just if, if there's the sense of them thinking differently than I do, um, or if you think that way of another person, then, then you can... You can uh, be tempted to exclude, or there's this even this fear, right, of being contaminated, that your ideas, that your convictions, the things that you have held on to so tightly, theologically, politically, socially, the, there's a fear of those things being contaminated, and so then the response is to exclude. And we all have this, this tendency of wanting to be, 
to be people who exclude. It's just part of, it seems part of who we are. And it's, it seems like we can do this so easily and subtly and not even realizing we're doing it. Miroslav Volf puts it this way. He says that the ability to embrace another or welcome another or, for, or forgive another, it flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So he's referring to this exclusion as a double exclusion, that the exclusion that's taking place is I exclude others, right, from, from, their, from their, my sense of, be, of their being human, and then as a result, I'm excluding myself too from being wrong or being sinful in any way. So as, as we find ourselves in this divided place, in this divided moment, um, there's, this, there's this sense in which we can be very exclusive and then start to exclude, and we, we then cannot ever welcome or let another in, and we can never imagine ourselves as needing to be welcomed or needing to be let in. We are, there's this double exclusion that we find ourselves in. And so he suggests, Wolf suggests that the answer to, to this exclusion is, is embrace. So you have both exclusion of, of removing yourself from the community of sinners and removing others from the community of humanity. And the answer to that is, is, is embrace, which he defines as the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them. To readjust our identities to make space for them is prior to any judgment about others, except that of identifying them in their humanity. So what, what, is, what is embrace? What's at the root of it? It's, it's, notice he says the will to give ourselves to others and to welcome, welcome them. The jury's still out on whether or not you might welcome them, but embrace actually begins with the will to do it, with the recognizing that it's an actual possibility that you can embrace another. What's really beautiful is he speaks of this idea of embrace as a drama, that, it, that there are four movements to this drama. On the one hand, there's the opening of the arms. You open your arms to another. Now the next step is for the, uh, the person that you might exclude or the other or the stranger. They then need to walk and move towards you. That you cannot force, that you cannot coerce. But that there is a reciprocity in the drama of embrace. And then the next movement is the actual taking place of embrace, which isn't one-sided, but it's both. To actually have an embrace, and if you imagine it, it requires both parties for the arms to be closed around the other. And then what's really interesting is he says the final part of that embrace is actually opening up your arms. Because if you were to stop at number three, and if you were to keep one another closed, then there's no possibility for the other to remain the other and to need to be in relationship with. So then there needs to be an opening of the arms so that both parties are seen in their full humanity and even accepted as a result or even because of their otherness. That there is, there is no, there, there is no, there is no um, uh, subtraction of a person, but that people are embraced in their full humanity. Now, I don't know what form exclusion takes for you, what it looks like for you. Like, how do you exclude others? How in this moment, this week, 
How have you excluded others as you imagine what's going to happen once all of the votes have been counted, whenever that might be? How how are you already imagining those you will exclude or how you will exclude them? And then the other question is, well, then what form of embrace should we as a church have toward one another? So what does it look like for you, for you to exclude others? And what does it look like for us to embrace the other? And these are questions. These are questions that we need to work out. These are questions that we actually together need to lean into and figure out. But here's the thing. The only way that we're going to take that step and take that risk and do the hard work that all of that's going to require. Because what I just what I just described is hard work. It's hard work to recognize the ways that I exclude you. It's hard work to recognize the ways that that perhaps I need to be somebody who is being shaped and formed by the Spirit to have the will to embrace and to welcome you. This is hard work. And are we the church, are we up for it? Are we up for that work? I mean, the only way we will be up for that work, the only way we will be up for the work and for the task ahead, given how divided and polarized things seem to be, and I don't know if it's going to let up, is that we actually trust that we have all of the resources that we need because of what God has done in Jesus and what he continues to do through the Spirit in bringing the church together and empowering it for its purposes. That's the only only way we will do the work. It's remembering that God, through Jesus, has brought us together as Christ's body, that we are one with each other. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says we're called the body of Christ. Verse 12, Christ is just like the human body. And a body is a unit, has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we all were given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part but many. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. That's verse 27. Then listen to these words in Ephesians 2. As God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is joined together in him and it grows up into a temple that is dedicated to the Lord. Christ is building you into a place where God lives through the Spirit. So while I can't know precisely what it, what it actually means and looks like for us, Grace Long Beach, to live faithfully into this, to this moment, and by when I say I don't know what it looks like, I don't mean every single little thing that you need to do or I need to do or that we need to do together. I don't have a program. I don't know what each step will be. But what I do know is that we have what we need to do the hard work to, to be engaged and to be committed to it. Like, I want to hope and trust that we actually can, that we can lean into it and figure it out together. That when we will do this through tension, through struggle, through forgiveness, that we have the resources through the Spirit to be able to engage the tension, engage the struggle, and take the risk 
of forgiving. Now, why do I have that hope and trust? I'll give you, I mean, Jesus really is the right answer here. Because if we don't believe in our core as Christians that God has made the church possible through Christ as its head and continual empowerment, and that empowerment through the Spirit, then what are we doing? Like, what's the actual point? Like, if we don't believe in our core that God is doing something and has done something through Jesus, and that part of of God's process, part of God's program, part of God's presence in the world through Jesus is the church, if we don't believe that, then what what are we doing? If we don't believe that, we will not have the resources to be what I think we're being asked and called to be. The body of Christ built up together by the Spirit of God. This is God's work. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the one doing the building. And so here's the, I mean, as I think about this, there's a risk, right? Of course, um, it can sound, I can sound super Pollyannish. Or, or perhaps naive. Uh, it, it, it might come off, what I'm saying might come off as if I don't think there are some real high stakes in this election or in this political moment. Now, I want to be clear. I think that, that the results of this election will have massive, long-lasting consequences. It would be ridiculous to think otherwise. Now, how those things parse out, in your opinion or my opinion, might differ, but we can agree that we know that that the stakes seem to be very high in this election. But the question for the church is, what do we do with those stakes? And what do we do with what happens? And what does it look like to embrace rather than exclude those who are different or those who are other. I mean, some on on a potential losing side might think that, that their job is to fight harder or to grasp for more power, to not give up and to not lose. While those on the winning side might think the work is done, right? Okay, well, the, the right person is empowered. There's nothing else I really need to do. No, the church is, is a people who have been called together to do God's work. Not called to grasp for power or to hold on to power. And not called to sit back and let others take responsibility but to actually live into its faithfulness of what it's been called to be in the person of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. So wherever you might find yourself, once all of the votes have been counted on the winning side or the losing side, the church has work to do. And the church has work to do with brothers and sisters who were at one time enemies, with strangers who are now family. Again, Miroslav Volf says this, whatever the results of the election, none of our major problems can be solved by political means alone. Though the right policies are crucial, all solutions require conversion of desire, 
responsible moral agency, love and solidarity, courageous truth-telling, and persistent hope. I'll read that last line again. Though the right policies are crucial, all solutions require conversion of desire, responsible moral agency, love and solidarity, courageous truth-telling, and persistent hope. I mean, that's a good summation of what of what the church might be called to in this time. A conversion of desire. Responsible moral agency. Leaning into love and solidarity. Telling the truth courageously. And then hoping persistently. And so here's some questions for, for you, for me, for us as a church to think, to think about in light of that. In light of where we find ourselves and in light of where God might be calling us as the church to be as we're situated in this very divided moment. Are you open to the conversion of your desires? Your particular desires as they relate to freedom, to liberty, to justice? Do you recognize that conversion of those desires probably needs to happen one way or another? Because all of our desires need to be shaped and sanctified by Jesus Christ. Are you willing to take the risk of extending love to your enemies? Are you willing to pursue solidarity with others, especially the weak, the poor, the stranger, the marginalized, the orphan, the widow? Are you willing to learn from Jesus the way, the life, and the truth? Are you willing to receive the truth as it's spoken to you? Are you willing to speak the truth in love to others? Another question, are you willing to do the hard work required for hope? Are you willing to do the hard work required for hope over and above the ease of cynicism? The church is called to hope. Is it possible for us to hope together? Are you willing to cultivate the imagination and the trust that hope demands? I mean, I think these are real questions as we think about our moment where we find ourselves and the church's calling moving forward. And so along with these questions, I want us to to think about um, three different practices or three different ways of leaning into embrace, of leaning into being this church where our desires are converted, where we are having moral, responsible agency, where we are people who are living into love and solidarity, where we can tell the truth courageously, and where we can hope when it seems like there's nothing left to do or to hope for. Here are those three practices. The first one is to watch your listening. To watch your listening, which I think is a funny, it's a funny phrase, like, how can I watch my listening? But to take care of it and to be, to be cautious of the way you're listening. Are we people marked by listening? The Bible it talks over and over and over about listening. One of the greatest commands in Deuteronomy begins with, hear, O Israel. 
The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Who are you listening to? John 10, 27 says this, my sheep, just as Jesus talking, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. James 1, 19 through, 27, through 21 says this, Know this, my dear brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to grow angry. This is because an angry person doesn't produce God's righteousness. Therefore, with humility, set aside all moral filth and the growth of wickedness, and welcome the word planted deep inside you, the very word that is able to save you. So be aware of what you're listening to and ask yourself, are you listening to the voice of the shepherd? Because as we listen to the voice of the shepherd, we are then able to listen to others. And this is a massive task and movement toward welcome and toward hospitality is to listen. It's to be open to listening. It is a way in the drama of embrace, as we described earlier, of opening your arms. Listen. The second thing to do is to change the tapes. Change the tapes in your head. You have tapes. I have tapes. And usually with those tapes, there are connections to faces. There are connections to things that have been said by people. And you begin to imagine and you begin to interact with people based on the tapes you play in your head about that person. Is it possible to change the tapes of a per, of, about a person, about an other, about a stranger? What does it look like to change the tapes in our praying life? To actually let go of the tapes that we play, of that film strip that plays continuously in our mind, let it go and lay it down and let Jesus shape it, challenge it, Speak to it. The last thing is to watch your speaking. Watch the way you use words. Proverbs 11, 9 through 11 says this, The godless destroy their neighbors by their words, but the righteous are saved by their knowledge. When the righteous succeed, a city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. A city is honored by the blessing of the virtuous. It is destroyed by the words of the wicked. Proverbs 15, 28, the righteous heart reflects before answering, but the wicked mouth blurts out evil. James 1, 4 through 10, consider ships, they're so large that strong winds are needed to drive them, but pilots direct their ships wherever they want with a little rudder. In the same way, even though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts wildly. So think about this. A small flame can set a whole forest on fire. The tongue is a small flame of fire, a world of evil at work in us. It contaminates our entire lives. Because of it, the circle of life is set on fire. The tongue itself is set on fire by the flames of hell. Dang. People can tame and already have tamed every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish. No one can tame the tongue, though. It's a restless, restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we both bless the Lord and Father and curse human beings made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come from the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, it just shouldn't be this way. So watch your speaking. The Bible is so concerned with the way that we use words with one another. And brothers and sisters, my friends, we find ourselves in a, in a place, given this pandemic, where words are most of what we have. 
We aren't seeing each other often in an embodied way. So what we have are words and they matter. And with them, we bless or with them, we curse. Now to update these Proverbs a little bit, thinking about 2020 in our current context, the godless destroy their neighbors by their memes, but the righteous are saved by their knowledge. A city is honored by the blessing of the virtuous. It is destroyed by the hashtags of the wicked. Proverbs 15, 28, the righteous heart reflects before updating their status, but the wicked mouth blurts out fake news. I mean, think about this in the sense of, of social media, right? It's, it's what we are doing right now and how we use words with one another. And certainly in this, in this polarized, divided moment, it is, it is often the tool that we use to destroy and tear down. The church cannot be this way. We need to watch the way we use our words. And we need to watch them even when those in power, and this is going to be very pointed, and I know I'm taking a risk, even when those in power use their words to pour gasoline on a fire or to create intentional division, the church cannot defend, nor can it celebrate the use of such words. And the church must not undermine its witness in the way it rejects or responds to those words. Our words matter, and they matter in the way that we are willing and open and taking the risk of embracing another. So watch your listening. Are you listening to the Good Shepherd? Is your listening to the Good Shepherd helping to form you to listen to others? Change the tapes. Bring those tapes, bring that film strip before God and then watch your words. Because we are so bent, it's so easy we, and it's not gonna get any easier toward exclusion. But may we be a church that takes the risk of embrace, that takes the risk of opening our arms, letting somebody walk into our arms, of actually embracing one another and then also of letting go. May we be the church that lives into the drama of that embrace, the drama that is so beautifully pictured in the story of the prodigal son, where you have a father whose arms are open, where the son is able to run into them, where the father then clothes the son as a reminder of his, of his being his child and throwing a party for him. What does it look like for the church to embody that type of welcome, that radical welcome that's costly? And the reason why we're able to do that is because God has given us everything we need in Jesus. First Corinthians again, chapter one. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Christ Jesus for in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge and of every kind. Verse seven, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will strengthen you to the end. And in this chapter, Paul goes on to talk about the foolishness of the cross and that it looks like it's just so foolish and it's so ridiculous. It looks like utter failure to those who cannot see it. But to the church, it's its absolute foundation and identity 
and it's what, it's what gives it its power through the Spirit. And he says this at the end of chapter 1, Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing, things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. May the church, may us, may Grace Long Beach in this moment May it find that in Christ Jesus, through the Spirit, we have everything we need to live into the welcome that God has called us to, into the embrace that God has shown us and that we can then extend to others. Thanks be to God.